0: For this episode of 3AM What's Keeping You Up At Night, we chat with Dr. Julie Reese, co-founder of Day One Early Learning Community. She talks with us about this brand new organization pivoting through the pandemic. I should say that I also have the honor of being Julie's friend and we are Vassar College classmates. Their social impact organization focuses on our little ones, their parents, their teachers and the community. She's a returning guest and I'm so glad to speak with her again. Just to remind everyone, the mission of Day One Early Learning Community is to revitalize Poughkeepsie and Dutchess County in the Mid-Hudson region of New York by investing in their youngest citizens. They support workforce development, parent empowerment, and early childhood learning. Day One will create jobs, improve family life, and ensure our youngest learners are positioned to be ready to enter school on grade level and thrive. Now you'd think that an organization dealing with children would shutter close through COVID. Mm, Not day one. They just graduated their first cohort of teachers and secured the opportunity to open four, yes, four preschool classrooms for the families in Poughkeepsie, New York. Julie joins us remotely from her home in Poughkeepsie for this episode. There is so much to talk about, so let's jump in. Julie, it is so nice to have you back on 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night. Um, And it's been quite a journey for you, not just with the pandemic, but you guys actually launched the program part of day one early learning community in the middle of the pandemic, as opposed to maybe pivoting a business plan or pivoting or not coming through on a program or understanding what virtual fundraising can look like. You guys were like, we are moving forward and if you could just give me a thumbnail sketch of day one, I think that's going to be great for particularly as it has to do with what you guys pushed through during the pandemic. That would be so helpful. I'd love for it to be in your words and for me to kind of fumble through a, a description. Sure. Well, thanks for having me back. I love speaking with you.
1: Day One Early Learning Community is about three main components. One is about parent and community engagement for early learning for parents who have young children. One is about creating actual school and teaching environments that support the best possibilities for children's learning before they start kindergarten. And the third is building up teachers so that they become high quality teachers in any situation, regardless of where their placement might be. And it's really the third one that we've been working on over the last year or so to kind of, you know, pull our bootstraps up and, and push through.
0: The whole model is really wonderful. What I especially appreciate about the third leg of the model is this, this cohort notion with the curriculum that you have developed and trying to do that virtually over time with the intensity that you had hoped would happen, quite a challenge. So how did you reconfigure things so that the cohort got all that they needed to, you know, in terms of the knowledge base, but then also had that feeling of collegiality?
1: Well, I think that what needed to be most reconfigured, so to speak, is that we had to wait until we could get our interns, our apprentices, in the schools themselves. And that wasn't able to happen until January. Basically, we just had to have clearance that they could come in and, and work with the children. So once that happened, that kind of kicked forward us being able to actually start the training program. We did the adult portion of our training in person. I think one of the happy moments was over the course of those 10 weeks, we went from being masked and as far apart in the room as we possibly could be to being unmasked and literally you know having a party over a table.
0: That's got to feel. I mean, just as an educator, That must feel just so rewarding because you were able to create a community that you need to for learning, right? But you were able to do that, and you were able to make it so that they could go into the schools when they could go into the schools, which could have just been one of those things where we're just going to have to wait until this thing kind of settles and we all figure it out. So talk to me about actually the courage of the cohort, to say, yeah, sure, okay, I'm in New York, but I'm, uh, yeah, sure, I, I I would love to get together with other people in an enclosed place. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I
1: love your phrase, the courage of the cohort, because they had courage in a lot of ways. They were the first group. They didn't have anyone else to talk to or to even really see a curriculum that had- already existed because I was writing it the night before I was teaching it the next day, for the most part. And they didn't know each other. Everybody was separate. He's a unique person coming in and to a group of essentially five strangers. Yet we had this time together. We were so happy to be in the same room, even if it was across the room, that I think that itself was a rewarding sense to keep going and be motivated. Of course, we didn't know whether or not by the end of that, we would be able to be unmasked and literally, you know, having a party over a table. But we kept that hope, I think. So the cohort was just amazing. And I think another interesting part of it was that because of the pandemic, I started out with a frame of mind that a lot of our getting to know you conversations were going to be around issues of the pandemic because it was just so present in our moment-to-moment and day-to-day lives for all of us for different reasons. And that's not what happened at all. We actually rarely talked about the actual pandemic, and we dug deeper back into our lives and our childhood, which is what the course is geared to do. And in some ways, that was healing. It was like things were okay before and things are going to be okay going forward. And we just have to keep going.
0: I love that. What a great lesson for the children that they're going to be teaching, right? I have found that those who, particularly in education, who not necessarily had just the wherewithal, because I think that, that could be unfair to folks who are like, yes, I'm happy to go to the classroom, but you know, the system just decided to go in a different way. What benefits do you think these teachers will have from actually learning? through COVID and preparing to teach through COVID?
1: I think that as our relationships with each other grew as part of this cohort model and their own competence and self-esteem in the classroom grew, it became clear that COVID wasn't the issue. I mean, yes, it was directly affecting all of our lives, but we could put that on the side as much as was possible and focus on what we wanted to be doing going forward. So every day they're in the classroom for five hours with, you know, young children who are more or less oblivious (laughs) to what's going on. (laughs) And in fact, we had moved our schools more or less outside under big tents. And so the kids were having a ball. They loved having outdoor classrooms. So the kids were providing all this energy There was, you know, the sense of success. We'd already had the classrooms outside from the first semester, from September to December. And so we were continuing on in January. So there was that that sense of we'd already done part of this. We can keep, you know, we can keep doing this. And then it was, I think, their own reflections on each other as a group of learners from such different places in their own lives that they were learning. Like, they were learning and growing in ways that they never expected. And... That was such a powerful experience that the more frustrating moments of COVID in the present time uh, faded away, at least during that time that we were together.
0: That's interesting. How do you think any of those lessons learned or experiences had will affect or impact the curriculum as you've laid it out currently?
1: That's a really interesting question. I don't know if I can answer that yet. I mean, I don't Mm. think I'll, I'll have a sense of that until we go through around two and three, because I've only taught it once and it was in the middle of all of this transition. But I do think it gave me, as a teacher, the courage to do the things that I was hoping to do, but wasn't sure that they would work. For example, I was hoping for people to connect to their childhoods. I was hoping for people to connect with one another and gain trust in one another to share things that, you know, were often difficult and, and painful. I was hoping that the bond that they built would be something that I felt was really going to last. But those were just hopes, you know, and that's exactly what happened. It happened even more than I can describe. And By about the first week, I turned to my partner, Jerry Laybourne, and just said, this is going to work. Like, this is going to work. I can't believe this. knew that because of that sense of commitment and and trust that they
0: had with one another. Are you going to get the same kind of reaction and the same kind of collegiality without COVID? I don't know. I, Mm -hmm. I think that's a fascinating question.
1: I'm more confident as a teacher in this model that I can push and I can pull out
0: these threads. But, man, that's a really interesting question. My gut says yes. So it sounds like the day was completely full, which is awesome, and a lot, of, a lot of learning, which is great, too. When there were days of either tension, if perhaps the news was particularly dark about the pandemic, what were ways to alleviate, I guess, the stuff people brought in the door? How did you get them to kind of release that? and then be fully present in moments when finding even the sanity to be fully present in anything was taxing for everyone, let alone folks who were preparing them to go and, and become consequential teachers for these little ones.
1: Yeah, I think that the model itself actually played into that without, of course, necessarily knowing that was going to happen. So the first thing that happens when they arrive in the afternoon is they – They've been out teaching, but not together. They've been in their own individualized classrooms. So when they're coming together as a cohort in the afternoon, it's the first time they're seeing each other that day. And they would come in and greet each other and just start talking about whatever. And sometimes that was about the darkness that was happening. A conversation that I particularly remember is about a a person who came in and said, you know. I've got this family member in the hospital, and I just can't focus. You know, I didn't expect them to be so ill from this. And what happened is the cohort is that they surrounded that person, and I mean by that emotionally, to listen to where her fears were at that moment and to talk through what she was feeling, validating what she was feeling. And then I would come in and try to gently sway us to what we were targeting that day as a topic. And usually that did work in terms of providing that space. But the whole teaching model is about providing space. And after they would come in and greet each other and get unpacked and stuff, we started with meditation every day. Um, I had my little meditation bell and we were in meditation for about five minutes before we did any teaching or learning. And then we did journal writing for another five to 10 minutes. So by the time class had started, there were opportunities that were just built into the structure for calming, for centering, for releasing, for letting go, or for letting something rise to the surface that really needed to be talked out before we could go forward.
0: And those practices will continue?
1: Yes, that was in the design from the start. Mm. We just didn't know how critical it was going to be.
0: Right, right. So they, you guys celebrated just a couple of weeks ago, is that right? Oh, we did. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, do tell. I think that was one of the most amazing moments for me. We set up a courtyard reception at a lovely space on the Vassar campus. It was the first time that that space was being used since COVID, and i think there was something at least for me that was really meaningful about that reopening families and friends came you know we had four incredible women who were graduating in this moment and there were about 60 people there oh wow for these four women and i i was like yeah that's right <laughs> and i think that in that moment it was so clear that it wasn't just about them It was about this shift that we are hoping will happen to our community. This was the moment to say, we can do this. We are going forward. And there may only be four people so far, but we are going for that 200. And we've now got these four warriors with us who are going to help us not only in terms of children and parents, but in terms of building the community itself to think of itself as resilient and the possibilities ahead instead of the struggles that we've had.
0: I love that. There is that parallel, right? Direct parallel. So for those who are from more marginalized communities seeking that preschool experience to prepare their child for the K-12, we know the long-term effects of having that opportunity. And also this opportunity with COVID and that it is, it is something where there wasn't control And that, I think, is lacked, obviously, in in marginalized communities as well. So I see this kind of parallel happening so that what they can fall back on, what these teachers can fall back on, will be kind of multi-level in terms of meeting the needs of the students and the family and also of the community. With you and your leadership... The McFarland Group strengthens three core organizational components to secure the future that you imagine. Strategic planning, leadership development, and operational effectiveness. Our proprietary process creates a data-driven strategy for sustainability and growth, founded on organizational management and behavioral sciences, maximizing your organization's current assets to realize your intended goals and outcomes. Let's find out how the McFarlane Group can help you serve more. Go to our website at themcfarlanegroup.com. So, Julie, just to remind any new listeners we have, your big, audacious goal, big, hairy, audacious goal, I think is the correct way to say it. You mentioned 200, but can you kind of fill that in a little bit? Sure. So in the Teaching Apprentice Program, our goal is to train 200 teachers through the
1: Apprentice Program in five years. In general, a cohort will have 10 people in it and will run about four cohorts a year, four cycles. But we also are setting this model up to be able to be lifted and moved to anywhere that's a fringe city in the country. And so... While 200 seems like a lot kind of in this moment, it's nothing compared to what our end goal is.
0: Yes, and just to dive a little bit deeper, the 200 is not just a go-have-fun-good-luck kind of thing. It is particularly to direct attention to wage issues, to preparedness and readiness issues. It's to really move this notion of preschool teachers from – babysitter, daycare, nursery, kind of sit around and play games all day, to this pre-kindergarten play-oriented learning, so that these 200 act kind of ambassadorial, correct?
1: That's exactly right.
0: So that's incredibly exciting, and particularly if you also, and I know you guys have this in your plan, to scale up so that it can go, as you said, to more fringe cities, which is a term I hadn't heard before, but just encapsulates all of that. Will your plan for each year change in any way because of what you guys have gone through? I know we spoke particularly about curriculum, but are there different components now for the in-classroom stuff that you would be thinking? So the question kind of is overall, does the business plan change any? I think that the business plan changes in the sense of how we
1: locate our classrooms and how we locate our teachers within those classrooms. Hmm. So we are very sensitive now to looking at every space where we might be placing apprentice teachers or ourselves opening classrooms and making sure that we have enough outdoor space. One of the biggest lessons for early childhood, in my opinion, is that we learned that we need more outdoor space and outdoor time for our kids, that Mm. learning outdoors is just as important for young children as learning indoors. And when we moved the classrooms outside, it was kind of like, oh, we're moving the classrooms outside. Yay, raw. You know, I mean, it seemed overwhelming. And it was overwhelming in some ways. It's a pain to carry your classroom in and outside every day. But in terms of what my apprentice teachers were learning was that, wow, we can do as much outside as we can do inside. And we need to be thinking about that wherever we go and wherever we're teaching. So... I hope they do. I hope they carry that model with them and that we also, as an organization, continue to look for places where we're going to directly teach kids that has truly a commitment to that outdoor space.
0: I love that. I will tell you that of the three folks who are here helping my executive director, Sassy Pup, and me put this episode together, they all were nodding as soon as you said outdoor. Um, That could be a function of being deprived when they were little of having that experience. Not that they were locked away. I don't mean to suggest that. But (laughs) this notion of play and outdoor, which I think sometimes wrapping an educator's head from a traditional kind of preparatory work, that that's really important. And it's not recess. That's right. right. It's really about learning and to put that on top, like a cherry on top with a mixture of play in it. Good gracious, everybody at any age would like something to be fun. So, Julie, while you had so much to think about in terms of just the health and safety of those who were involved, making sure that the curriculum was delivered, as well as understanding the relevance of it day to day, making sure that there was community built, making sure that you were also working the model at the same time. What fun things were some takeaways for you? Oh, my goodness. Every day was a fun thing.
1: I would get down to my office in the morning, which is the workshop where I teach in, and I would sit down and go, yes, it's another day. I can't wait for this. Literally, (laughs) like that's what I did. And some of that was just that I had time to get my own brain around what I was about to do, mm. but some of it was because the experience of working with the cohort was, it was life-changing for them, and therefore it was life-changing for me. Mm. And I couldn't wait for that next day to come and to hear what was going to happen, what was going to unfold, what was I going to learn that I hadn't really framed as a reference before before. So that incredible bonding process was just way more than I could have ever imagined or ever asked for. It's also a total joy to watch teachers learn how to teach in the sense that we would have stories every day about what they'd been doing in the classroom or what the children had been doing. And, you know, as a director, when I was in a school, I was in the middle of it. But in this mode, I was sitting one step back and listening to them tell about their days. And it was a delight. It was wonderful to be able to hear the stories of early childhood, both through the eyes of a new learner and also a step removed for me to place it into a bigger context.
0: I love that for you, that the transformations happened throughout the community that you had built. Let me try to extrapolate this. So for other social impact organizations that found themselves pushing through confounding COVID, if you will, and pushing through on their programs and were successful, I suspect the same kind of feelings of delight and deliverance (laughs) probably would feel very much the same for them. For those who are thinking about starting programs, and COVID is a huge speed bump, but the notion that something would not go right, and I don't mean just like, you know, you can't get the door unlocked, but that there could be what could be seen as a catastrophic obstacle What kind of words of wisdom could you share from your experience?
1: I think that while COVID is certainly present for all of us right now in our minds, there have been lots of times in the last 20 or 25 or 30 years that monumental events have happened. And in particular, I'm thinking about 9-11. And how do we keep our community engaged and focused forward during fear and anger how do we work with kids and families around that to both be validating and realistic, but also to say, but you know what? We have to take this as a lesson learned, even if we didn't want to learn it, and move forward. And so I think my advice is, if you're in the moment and you're thinking, I can't believe this one more thing happened, it's to back up what so initial goals were, and you know, was life a little better when you were writing those initial goals? And to think forward, and what do you imagine is going to look like a year from now? And that's part of being in a nonprofit, is that you carry this determination and hope with you all the time.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. So as we come to a close, Jules, what do you hope for this initial cohort moving forward? oh my goodness, everything. Each one
1: is an individual and each one is taking their own next step from going back to school to go to their next step of their developmental degree, teaching degree, to partnering with us in day one as an employee, to maybe coming on as one of our teachers as we're opening our own new programs this fall for children. And that they continue to follow that path that's their path. They don't necessarily worry about other people's paths, but they keep hooked to that passion that they felt during the cohort experience and think about how that drove them to whatever their next step is and that they keep that fire alive. And that's what a cohort's about, is to help each other keep that fire alive too. And boy,
0: with these four, I have no doubt that's what they're (laughs)
1: That's what they're going to do.
0: I love that. Yeah, forever, right? That's right. So, what do you hope this inaugural cohort will bring to the cohorts that follow?
1: Ah, well, the last thing they did before they left was write a letter to the person who might be sitting in their seat next time. And they left that letter for them in a basket. Obviously, they don't know who that's going to be, but the first day of class next time will be a letter from the cohort before finishing prior, and that's their personal note. I don't know what they say, but I think that sense of continuity, you're not in this alone, you're not even in this just as your own cohort, but that you're going to become part of this bigger family that keeps growing and being passionate about early childhood is the message. The message is connection and relationships.
0: Julie, thank you so much. That was just a perfect way to end it. It was terrific to have you as the guest to kind of round out this series. From this, my sense about COVID was that it really was but a speed bump versus a cataclysmic kind of event that caused you and your team to say, well, not this year which needs to be applauded for sure. I know that the work of day one, not only will continue, but will expand. And so we will obviously have to have you back to see how a year without COVID, or at least we're planning on a year without COVID goes and kind of see how that collegial cohort worked under different conditions. Julie, thank you so much for being with us and and joining us again on 3AM. What's keeping you up at night? Thank you so much for having me and sharing this time. Trust, courage, audacity, and grit. All these traits and more describe those in the day one ecosystem as they successfully worked with COVID restrictions to graduate their first cohort, providing student teaching opportunities, and prepare for a very active and groundbreaking new year. And thank you all for listening to this episode of 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night, a production of the McFarlane Group. Our next series focuses on leadership. We are excited to bring you stories from social impact leaders looking into this new post-COVID world and defining themselves and their missions accordingly. It's all about solving the problem, not simply applying salve. My name is Deb McFarlane Enright. My thanks to Relationary Marketing and their beautiful new studio, The Chase Studio, at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center for their continued support. This is 3AM. What's keeping you up at night? Thank you for listening. Until next time.